everyone, and uh, welcome back to Don't Be Look Up. We have a, a special edition for today, mainly because we have two great guests, but one of them is not a guest. It's actually going to be our co-host today, which is Sarah Livingston. She is a data expert in this space, and she works a lot of great brands on their data infrastructure and strategy. And we have Selena Wong also with us. She is the CEO of Data Culture, a data consultancy, but also the former head of data from Tool Care. So let's just get into it where Selena, what is your background and how did you get into the role today? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me and also shout out to Sarah for introducing me to you and that's how we got here today. Um, my background actually started so, you know, not in data, not in startup. I started in corporate finance, right? And when you think about corporate finance in the Fortune 50 uh, size of the world uh, at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, at Amex, so some of the biggest names you can think about uh, on this planet. Um, and so that was because they didn't teach, you know, coding in undergrad business school, at least back when I went to school. So I started my career in finance, uh, specifically in financial analysis, FP&A, and eventually what ended up happening was I taught myself SQL along the way. And that was because you start to get asked the questions of, well, why is that happening? And I would have to sit and wait around for someone else to pull the data for me. And if you get to know me better, you just know that I'm the type of person that starts to jump right in. And what I realized was you got to pull the data yourself. So long story short, realized um, that I got told to uh, stay in my lane at one point in my corporate career because of how I was, you know, getting into different lanes and trying to pull data myself. And all I was trying to do was give the business answers, right? Data-driven answers. And so I made the jump to data and startup. You know, um, I was given the chance to be head of data, data hire number one at my very first startup, which was Poppin. And I was brought in to establish uh, the BI tool. But guess what? That meant I had to learn data engineering. Um, and the person hiring didn't have any technical skill sets, you know, and, and uh, what they were looking for is somebody who was analytical. What they didn't know is they needed someone with more technical skill sets, which is what I built along the way. And I think we have a couple of questions of how to bridge the gap between technical versus the business side uh, further along in the episode. But um, I've now been head of data three times. Um, and two out of the three startups have been acquired. So, you know, I think that's a pretty good success rate in the startup world. Um, and because of that, I was reached out to for this opportunity at Data Culture to lead the organization to the next level. So, you know what? I thought, let's give it a shot. Let's share what I've learned at the three startups I've been at, especially the fact that I've led the organization from a strategy perspective, from a text stack perspective, and from a how do you leverage your data to optimize your business perspective to get us to acquisition um, and help other brands out there do the same? That's a, a really fascinating background. And, you know, I, I would say on the finance side, just touching on that for a second, it almost seems like finance really hasn't even stepped forward probably since the time you even were in finance, at least the time I was in finance, where I don't even know if SQL is a word, right, that is even used. It might be VLOOKUP which is kind of the, the genesis even of the name of this uh, specific podcast. But wh why do you think that people within finance are not really adopting kind of these key tools that, let's say, the data side has been adopting for quite a while at this point? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when I, when I think about 
even the word VLOOKUP, it's still something I can probably write in my dreams. <laughs> and Will, I think you've been, you know, in finance, so you know that feeling of writing a formula in your dreams. But I think that uh, people in the finance world haven't stepped forward into the data world because there's a, a currently it feels like there's a huge barrier to entry, which is taking the time to learn how to write SQL, right? And I think that there's that barrier to entry, which um, I can talk later more about of what technology we're starting to see that lowers that barrier to entry, which is no code or low code. Um, I also think there's a uh, there's this concept that data or software uh, engineering or data engineering in general is such a complex thing. And I would argue there are folks out there, you know, using jargon that makes it seem complex when really what the gap is, is talking about it in terms that someone can understand, right? Like if your audience is finance, talk to them like the language they know, right? Like example, if you're going to say you look up, you're essentially talking about something that's joining to another table. So a technical person talks about joining tables and, you know, CTEs and the finance person sitting there going, okay, is that a VLOOKUP? And there's just this, uh, I would say this huge gap of you're speaking one language and finance or the business stakeholder speaking another language. And it's a matter of being that translator. Like what does this equal in terms of that? And then also being able to speak the same language. I think that can be easily overwhelming for some people. And I'd love for you to speak a bit about like how you went in and approached that, prioritized, and ultimately got everybody speaking in the same language and literally looking at the same dashboards. Absolutely. I think you, like many things in life, when there's a big overarching uh, goal you're trying to get to, and make it analogous to trying to train for a marathon, you have to break it up into pieces, right? And so when you think about that, it's uh, from a prioritization standpoint, this is often what I tell junior folks and honestly, some senior folks who feel loss uh, in the process, um, which is how do I assess prioritization? Like how do I, when I say I wanna unify everybody on a set of metrics or, or a set of dashboards, how do I even get started on that? Um, I often approach it with, and, and perhaps this is like the beauty of starting in finance, is looking at the PL of the company that you're at or supporting. What are the top three drivers of your revenue and what are the top three drivers of your costs? Because I guarantee you that the company's OKRs or strategic goals, whatever someone calls it, is related to those items, right? And that helps you identify when you get started on this journey of unifying uh, metrics or dashboards or KPIs, what is your leadership team going to care about, right? What's the biggest bang for your buck? Um, and so in my case, D2C was the fastest growing channel when I had entered Tula, right? And and you were watching that and you were 
um, one of our key partners in that uh, journey, I would say. And so when I first entered, my my number one priority was getting our, our econ metrics, one, standardized through even getting into the nitty gritty. How are we how are we coming up with our UTM parameters, which I know, Sarah, you and I back in the day worked hand in hand and Sarah helped me, uh, gave me a framework and, and I was the person going out there and, and being the data, data steward, the governor of data. They call me the data wrangler. You know, they called me Gumby, which if you don't know, Gumby is just someone who is able to flex in all different directions. But the whole point is to bring that framework and operationalize it, right? And when I say operationalize it, it means go talk to the people. And I don't mean just the manager or the director or the VP of that department. It's getting down to the level of who's the one assigning and inputting the data and ensuring they understand this is the framework we should follow and why we should follow it. Because oftentimes people are told what to do, but not why they're doing it. And when they know why they're doing it, they then are more committed to learning that this is, you know, the reason for good data input, as well as as a data team, selfishly, you're going to get better data. Um, so going back to like, how do you prioritize at the time for our business, B2C was the, the primary area of growth. And so we started with that, where we worked through the uh, e-com team. And then it was a matter of like, what's next? Was it Amazon? Was it our retail business? Was it, you know, was it something else that the C-suite was thinking about? But it was really asking them the question of what matters the most to you right now, alongside with understanding the PL. Because what someone tells you might change tomorrow, but if you understand what's driving the business, that's going to stay until something dramatic like a pandemic comes along and changes everything. But um, but I would say that those are the key things that I look at when I join a company and look to unify metrics or look to unify reporting. It's understand how the business works and talk to leadership. And it's really we should note this is why you joined like the week <laughs> of a pandemic. Well, it's a good time to join. I mean, technically, you know, you're remote. You have a lot of people that have demand, you know, for products online. So all good timing, but I actually kind of want to even go back to Selena, the point you made around starting with kind of the finance, starting with the P&L. How do you even go about, or your team go about setting those right targets or thinking about, because I know there's a lot of debate today about revenue, you know, growth, kind of growth at all costs mentality that's going out the door into now, what is a contribution margins, gross profit. And there's definitely a lot of difficulties to get to that level of granularity when it comes to the data side of things. So how do you think about where you started, you know, in terms of the unification of people's understanding of what to target versus the granularity, which is maybe going after, let's say, the ultimate goal, which is, let's say, profitability for the company? Absolutely. I had actually, when I was um, towards the end of my time at Tula, we had that, we had that exact problem that we were trying to um, resolve, right? Which is, we want you to hit your revenue targets that we set, and yet we want profitability, but we don't know how to get both, right? And it's making, helping the business dig into the data to make them make the tough decisions. Because um, what we ended up doing was when we built the forecast, one of the things that uh, that my team took on was forecasting, which may or may not always live in the data 
team's uh, responsibilities, but because of my background, married with the amount of data we had, forecasting sit in on my team. And so we helped the business forecasts at a, at a, I call it like a levers level. So it's not just revenue. It's not just what's the number of customers or orders. It's deeper than that, right? It's what is, when you think about um, the number of emails you send out, right? When you think about what's the conversion rate of that email, it's down to those levels. And so when we thought about it for paid media, which, you know, I think Sarah, you'll you really appreciate this because you were very close in supporting us here. Um, we were, of course, given pressure to always hit your revenue target, right? Like who isn't given pressure to get more revenue, period. But then do it at a at a rate where you can put uh, you can come out with a more efficient CAC. And and CAC for all those out there that may not know the, the term, it's um, cost of acquiring a customer, right? So the rising forces or costs of CAC in the market versus trying to hit your revenue target was just, it was a, it felt like a mountain that no one could get over or no one knew how to climb, right? And so we were digging into the data of, well, by channel, so, you know, by source medium, if you will, um, what was driving new customer acquisition and what was the cost of that channel, right? And what was the trend of those costs over time? And what was the, we would measure against ROAS. So what's the revenue that you generated off of those different channels? Um, and what we came to realize was we built out a bunch of scenarios and presented it back to leadership and showed them, listen, if you want CAC at X level, you're never going to hit Y as revenue. So you either have to loosen your constraints on CAC in order for us to hit revenue, or you're going to have to accept we're never going to hit that revenue target if you want us to care about CAC and ultimately that translating down to profitability, right? So I think for a lot of listeners out there, if you're an operator, that's always the struggle, especially in our current uh, economic environment. And it's really a, what do you want as your North Star? You can't have it all. Everybody wants to have it all, but you have to make a conscious choice of, is profitability more important to your the state of your business right now? Or is, I, I don't love using the term uh, growth at all costs because that's not how the world works anymore. But if you had to give up you know, call it 10% of profitability to gain 25% of revenue, that's worth it to you. But that means you got to dig into the data and have that hypothesis and that scenario built out and go for it. I think one of the great things there, and we should, was like the partnership between marketing and analytics. And we'll give a shout out to like Zach and Patrick, who were Tula, like marketing leads working with Selena. And I think Diving in there more, I think, will be really interesting to share with everyone, which is really how you were able to highlight the need for a brand. We'll put brand in quotes, but the importance of top and mid-funnel marketing and how, while marketing can tell that story qualitatively, it's really having that pairing with a strong analytics lead and being able to tell that from a truly data-driven standpoint. Absolutely. You're actually hitting on a topic that is very difficult for analytics leads like myself. I've talked to quite a few heads of data, a few data leaders in the industry that have gone off to try to find and productize a solution for what you're talking about, which is measuring the, you know, mid to top of funnel, um, air quotes on brand awareness, but, but that is where, um, 
we look to tools like MMM. And when I say MMM, not the classic definition of MMM, I'm talking about the, I would say the newest, uh, latest and greatest versions of MMM, where you're able to take um, essentially breaking, you know, going back to breaking it down to uh, terms that everyone understands. It's back then MMM models only worked when you had two years or five years worth of data where you've got a steady business and you're able to measure some of this like mid to top funnel um, uh, marketing work and what is its return. Nowadays, we're looking at models where you're able to insert, you know, the latest, uh, like what happened two weeks ago, right? Because businesses are moving so fast. And especially if you're in the SMB space, last year versus this year are totally different behaviors, right? And so you need measurement that that is timely, right? Like that's the word I'm looking for here. It's it's timely. It's not because it happened last year, but because Good it happened point. two weeks ago, yeah. right? Time, so, time is of the essence. Definitely, yeah. exactly. I, I'm actually curious, curious on that point where, you know, MMM, you know, it's been definitely a topic, especially with MTA, you know, feeling like it's kind of coming in the other side of the direction where it's harder to track things. So wh where do you feel like even in your journey with Tula or other experiences, even customers today or clients you work with, what is the right time to even have an MMM? And what are kind of the indicators saying, hey, is it channel complexity? Is it size? Is it all the different pieces that actually make it make sense? for some to start using that product. And I think, do you want to explain for everyone, MMM, like what media mix modeling truly is? Well, we have, we have experts on this. This is all experts, people, you know, experts listening. So let's, uh, okay. we'll assume, we'll, think, we'll write it, we'll write think, it up. <laughs> well, if you think everyone knows what MMM is and every single person listening can put a exact definition in the comments, let's try, let's play a game. You know, you, you know what? It's actually fair. I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer to, to both of you. And you, you could tell me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm thinking MMM is different. So I'd love to hear well, from you, Selena. <laughs> I would say I'm, I'm going to put out a challenge for all those that are listening, right? If you know what it is, fantastic. If you don't, my challenge to you is reach out to one of the three of us to ask. And, you know, my motto is always make data approachable. So no question is a dumb question. Even if you think it is, uh, just know that I won't, I won't think it is. So that's my challenge to the listeners out there who don't know what MMM is. I'm more than happy to educate you. Um, I think back to the question of like, when is it the right time for you? Uh, it based on my prior experience, as well as the clients that we're working with today, it's really the complexity of the channel plus, you know, how big of a business you are. Um, because sometimes you could have a business that, again, I can't think of many businesses, but a business that might be generating somewhere between 50 to 100 million, right? And you're, when you think about channel complexity, you quickly get asked, you know, you start with where are these leads coming from or where are these new customers coming from, right? And then quickly after that, you start getting the question of, well, how much should I be investing in, you know, in these Instagram ads versus TikTok versus my YouTube channel versus whatever channels you might be on, right? And I know TV and, and out of home has been picking up quite a bit. Um, and that gets harder to measure as we were just talking about. So I think that uh, from a data person perspective, my ans my short answer is as soon as possible, because that's what gives you a competitive advantage in your industry. Um, that's just my advice to most folks out there. I think that the unfortunate part is I often see the 
I'm trying to catch up because I delayed my decision on doing anything with data. But guess what? The sooner you invest in this, the faster you know how to move. And what I'm trying to, one of the things I'm trying to do is help people out there understand the value of investing in data, because I think there's an there's a huge underestimation of what it can do for you. Good point. I think that point on channel diversification is great. And I think something else a lot of people are thinking about is also there's marketing channel diversification and then sales channel diversification. And then how you start measuring that impact of going from D to C to marketplace like Amazon to then wholesale, like we'll click on beauty and Sephora and Ulta. So you could speak a bit about how you think about that from a, both like what the business needs and then how do we support that analytically? Yeah. And just to hone in on your question there, it's like, how do we think about that cross-channel attribution? Measurement and then just even approaching it from a, like giving the business a holistic view. And also I uh, just want to add on to that. Like, what, what are the players in all those decisions given back to like, the unification of the, the team? Like who else do you have to bring in into that conversation when you do expand channels? outside of, let's say, the core D2C channel that you're focused on? Yeah. Um, I think from a, I can start with the question of like who you bring in because it's often starting with the stakeholders before you even measure, right? Um, because how do you know what to measure? And are they, bought, are, are they bought into it? Because going back to like data is only as good as the people putting in the data, uh, that means it's the stakeholders having buy-in and what we're trying to do. Um, so for how I have seen it done is um, when we had D2C in a great place, the nice part is once you've got a channel or a part of the business up and running, uh, at what happens is people start to hear, wait a minute, you should go to the data team because look what they did for us. Or, oh, you, you have an inefficiency there because you're, you're doing a VLOOKUP to how many you know Excel spreadsheets and it takes you five hours to put together to put together some report. It's like, no, you could click a button just like this team does, right? And so I think there's a little bit of, of, of stakeholder management, making sure that everybody in your company knows what you're doing and why they should come talk to you. And at the same time, when you're doing great work, there's almost this, you're like running a mini business, right? A referral internally where people are telling you, telling others to come and talk to the data team to optimize what they're doing. Um, but when you get into those conversations, it is gathering what are their pain points, right? Like, talk to me about what you're doing today that feels super painful because a lot of the data work we do is a combination of automating that pain away as well as getting you, um, it's that speed to insight. So how, once we automate the manual piece of what you're doing, how do we quickly get you to the key data points that you need to make a decision on what to do next, right? Um, and when you gather those pain points, the other component to it is uh, is bringing that back to the C-suite, right? Or ultimately, everyone's rolling up to the CEO, right? And giving them the floor to say, that's important, that's not important. Because I promise you, everyone coming to you will think their stuff is the most important. Um, and then, you know, thankfully, I've worked with a lot of great stakeholders. So they will also, you know, tell me or try to tell me, I would love to get this done. I know your plate is full. So... I give this a medium priority, but if you can slot me in, then great. So who gets to make the decision? Ultimately, it's who everyone reports to, which is your CEO. Um, and so that's from a stakeholder and prioritization management perspective. From a measuring across multiple channels, that's where we've also um, 
gone back to MMM because we tried all sorts of different ways where the example I can think of is we uh, invested significantly into TikTok when everybody was starting to get into TikTok and we saw a jump in TikTok. Give yourself credit. You What's that? Early. Give yourself credit. You were early. We were definitely... Give yourself credit. I'll take the credit and I'll put it in my uh, folder of praises from Sarah. <laughs> um, when we invested in TikTok uh, very early, as Sarah said, there weren't a lot of measurement tools out there to help us assess if I invest in TikTok, is this going to come back on our.com? Is this going to come back in Amazon or is it going to come back to us at Ulta or Sephora? Right? Like you just don't know because if Sarah sees a TikTok for an I-bomb, uh, where is she going to go buy it? Uh, and that's the business's question, right? And so we did everything we could until we realized we needed to get a tool out there, which was eventually um, us exploring MMM options. But even from the very fundamentals of what we did, we were able to isolate, because we unified our data, uh, we were able to isolate that when we invested in TikTok, we saw a spike in Amazon. So it made you think or hypothesize that the segment that is converting from TikTok is converting on Amazon. Um, and it was uh, it was a light bulb moment because then you realize, okay, well, whenever you invest in TikTok, this is the platform we convert on. And that platform has its own contribution margins versus your own website or through a third party. That's a really interesting point. I mean, it, it almost seems like it was kind of a data-driven gut feel almost at first of, you, you kind of got the, the numbers together so you can see kind of anomaly detection, human anomaly detection that this channel has kind of a halo effect on this other channel, which I feel like is a very common way to start with a lot of these things. But even going to that, you talk about data centralization. One of the things we typically like to talk about is what are the kind of the tools that you even think about using to even consolidate everything, to analyze things? Are there kind of some general tools that you've kind of found very helpful throughout the journey you're saying, hey, these are kind of tools to check out uh, if I were either starting on the journey of building a data team or even optimize your current, let's say, data team performance. Yeah, I can speak to, I think of it in two ways. Like one is what's the data tech stack that I've implemented um, time and time again. And I would say that that ecosystem is constantly evolving, as I alluded to earlier, that there are new players in the space trying to lower the barrier of entry. Um, so I can talk to that first and then go back to, well, if I'm trying to get started, how do I get started? And what's, what's your, well, what's your, what's your playbook to sell two out of three of the companies that you've, you've worked for? And really that, that's the data stack we want potentially yeah. to think about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I would caveat by saying it always depends on the company, right? Because not every tool is a good fit just because you've used the stack over and over again, doesn't mean that it's going to fit your business, right? For various reasons. But typically you have some ETL connector out there, which is how do I take these silo sources and at least get it out of that silo source to get it ready to dump into a central warehouse. Um, and so that's often uh, tools out there like a Fivetran that's widely known in the data space to pull these sources, um, meaning Shopify, GA, Clavio, whatever you're, you're operating on into then a centralized data warehouse, right? Like how do I unify all this stuff or call it a central data warehouse? Um, you take it from Fivetran to a, what's commonly like a Snowflake BigQuery, which is Google, Redshift, which is um, AWS. Uh, and then from there you have options of you either 
put your business logic on top of that data warehouse or the better, better practice is tools like dbt or sql mesh and these are are quite technical but if you're a data person or someone who thinks they could do this those are tools you would use to i call it in simpler terms version control for what you're transforming because we all know our businesses have their own particular logic um and then it gets to a business intelligence tool right like i think that a lot of end stakeholders are exposed to that layer which is uh, Looker, Tableau, um, some of the newer players in the space, Sigma, ThoughtSpot, um, Omni, they're more built for the Excel-minded uh, folks. So you can play with with uh, the BI tools like they're more Excel spreadsheet-like. So that's from a technical yeah, perspective. Yeah, I'd say <laughs> from, from like a, just a, a pop question, What by the time you left maybe Tula, what percentage of people are still in spreadsheets versus, let's say, using some form of automated BI layer? Oh, great question. I think I put that percentage at, you know, I think at worst case, probably 10, 15, at best case, 5%. Because I will tell you this, one of the proudest moments I had was when the creative team, which when you think about creative folks, they're like, numbers, that's gross, I'm scared. Uh, I had the creative team coming proactively to the data team asking for data on what to do next, which they were marrying, like, how do I prioritize all the work I have? So can you give us data on what was the best performing asset? And when you have creative people who, when I started my career at Tula, telling me they were scared of numbers to now proactively remembering to ask for data, that's when you've got data culture. No wow. pun intended. Yeah, I was about to say, you really you played it up well for the data culture at the end, which we didn't even cover too much of. But I, my, my last, you know, general question, Sarah, you might have some more is, you know, how do you feel like that data culture and just the general way you, you ran the business and your team ran the business helped to think about, let's say, when P&G came in and bought Tula, of course, no, no numbers, no anything else that's going to reveal anything. But how do you think that influenced, you know, that conversation or even the conversations you've had around you know, performance overall. I think it played a, uh, a huge part of what made Tula stand out. I think Tula in and of itself, the brand, the product are fantastic, right? And then how do you stand out even further from the crowd? When you think about the beauty industry, right? It's such a hot industry. Um, and, and yet, how do you stand out from that crowd when you're thinking about acquisition, right? And, and part of that competitiveness is data and tech. How have you been a data forward, tech forward beauty company, right? When I joined Tula, I looked around, I'm like, I couldn't think of many, maybe one company, maybe two that had a data team or even thought about using data to optimize their business. So when we, you know, I think that that was one of the uh, differentiators of our acquisition, which is look at the capabilities that we built at Tula that drove this business. So we're not just a skincare company, right? We're a data-driven skincare company. And you can actually say that because um, I'm sure you've heard many companies out there say they're data-driven, but I challenge uh, those folks to think about redefining that, right? Like, are you truly data-driven? Are you just saying it for the tagline? That's that's fair. And actually, I had one, one other question that I always ask for every guest is you talked about North Star metrics actually in the beginning. So is there one North Star metric that you would pick that you would say, okay, I would stake the business if we track this specific North Star metric and why? Mm. 
That's a really good question. I I know it's a cop out to say it depends on the business because it really, really does. Um, uh, I think the first the first word that popped in my popped in my head was revenue, right? Like regardless of what business industry you're in, I I know that that's like to me, if you don't have that and all the, I call it the metric tree, like all the levers that drive that revenue for your business, um, without the income, where are you going to go? Now you could argue some are grow at all costs and revenue doesn't matter. We know plenty of those, uh, stories out there. So their North Star metric may just be user acquisition. Um, but I mm-hmm. think in today's time when having a viable business profitability matters, well, guess what? There's no profitability if you got no revenue. Interesting take. I, I, that's the first time I've heard revenue. So that, I think that, that bridges maybe your finance data marketing side, if anything. Oh, my light went out here. But uh, the yeah, I think it's interesting because I feel like most people I've talked to have been head of growth, you know, roles. So they're very focused on the metric, which let's say LTV to CAC, this and that, MER, which, you know, in the finance world, MER, percentage of revenue, you know, marketing is percentage of revenue. So yeah, I, I do think it's interesting though, because I, I do agree with you, the latter really matters up into that revenue. So really, really good point. Yeah. Sarah, Maybe, anything uh, else what you're thinking? No, no. <laughs> I'm going to double down on Selena's. Like I, I've heard others and I'm always shocked when people don't say revenue. I also think it goes to making sure that you're thinking cross-functionally beyond just that growth team, right? Because when you're talking about your exec team, you're talking about growth, you're talking about retention team, then you're talking about brand team, you're talking about a creative team, you're talking about a finance team, you're talking about a merchandising team, you're talking about a physical product team, and then you're talking about some like amalgamation of like e-com, IT, digital product. At the end of the day, what they all need to be driving towards is driving revenue. So you can talk about getting like site load time down. You can talk about getting site conversion rate down. You can talk about like getting revenue from your Clavio emails up. But at the end of the day, like it all needs to ladder back to what is going to grow the company, which is revenue. Because you could be looking at a new user acquisition number. But as we all know, if you're acquiring bad users who aren't going to spend money or have a high churn rate, low AOV, again, you're on a metric that's disconnected from revenue. So, I mean, it... It has to be revenue. I think every point Selena's made in terms of bringing the business along and bringing the team together, like show the importance of having that metric be revenue. I think you're, you've kind of won me over, at least for this conversation. I think the back of my brains continue to say like gross profit, contribution margin. They're always just in the back of my brain, but I actually, it's consistent with your unification of the team point because it is very true. You know, just trying to make sure that it is an attainable, probably target, attainable metric across different functions, even the creative team. It's a really like interesting place you're talking about, Selena, which is maybe saying gross profit per customer is not going to be necessarily as in reach. Uh, shout out to the creative teams. I've worked with a lot of them. They're great. So not not talking about that. But yeah, the revenue, I think, like unification and the operations team can come in, optimize the cost, do everything else around that. So that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, Sarah, anything else that, that we didn't cover with no. Selena? And we'll win you over on the revenue as the ultimate metric over time. <laughs> we'll beat you down. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Well, I, I know we also didn't cover the data culture you know, piece, but that will probably be something we can cover you know, at another point in time. But in general, you know, if people want to find you, Selena, where could they come to actually uh, you know, kind of follow up with you? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to continue the conversation, you know, as people probably have more questions for me, want to fight us on the revenue metric or, or want to talk about what's an MMM. Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Selena Wong, um, CEO at Data Culture. You can find us on our website, which is datacult.com. Um, and those are the best places to find me. And, and then otherwise, uh, my email, which will probably come through LinkedIn as well. Great. Well, thank you again, Selena, for your time. Sarah, thanks again for being the co-host, first edition yeah, of the, the external co-host. And you, you did a great job. So thanks, everyone, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you, Selena. Thanks.